Assalamualaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq el and you can keep up with us on social media at Radio Islam USA. That's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and share. You'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, uh, you name it, you will find us there. Now, before we start, we'd like to give a big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Recycle Processes. Recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with Marguerite Aziza. She is the executive director and co-founder of Muslim Arc, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative, and Layla Abdullah-Poulos, who many of you know as longtime Radio Islam culture contributor and also founder of NBA Muslims. She's also the New York senior trainer for Muslim Arc. You're about to hear part one of my conversation with them that touches on the challenges of anti-racism work in and outside of the Muslim community. And we welcome them both to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. So um, it, is, it is great having you all here. Uh, as we were talking a little bit offline, um, before we get into any of the phenomenal work you're doing with Muslim Ark, um, you got some problems with our pizza, uh, Sister Layla. I refuse to call it pizza. Oh. Oh. I'm so sorry. You know, I I have friends that live in Chicago in addition to you and your lovely wife and and Bill Chambers and a whole bunch of I have like long, I watched these two young women grow up and when I first came to Chicago to do a national presentation, they tried to get me to eat the pizza mm -hmm. and I was like, No, nah, I'm not feeling it. Now they're fellow New Yorkers so they roll back. <laughs> I said it. But this time I was just like I, I hadn't eaten all day. I was starving. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'm being closed-minded. Let's give it a try. And so at the hotel, someone said, oh, you have to go to this pizza parlor because they have the best pizza, mm -hmm. okay? Now, so in my head, I'm thinking pizza. So I'm thinking actual pizza. You're thinking that flat stuff. And then they, they put this bowl of bread stuffed with cheese and, and, and layered with a thick coating of sauce on top. And I looked at Marguerite and I just was like, well, what is this? Like, how do you eat pizza with a fork and a knife? Like, that right there is unnatural. That's a real meal. That's all I want to tell you. It's not a real meal. A real meal is taking a slice, folding it in half, and eating it, and you can walk around. You don't need a knife. You don't need a fork. You can walk around and have your meal. I don't want to. I don't want to spend too much time on the pizza. <laughs> I'll just say that that it's Chicago not. pizza. It, it's a representation of our character. We don't bend. We don't fold. Uh, okay. So. Well, I won't you hold go. your pizza right. against you. <laughs> ah, okay, all right. All I, won't, right. I won't force California Pizza Kitchen on you either. So. <laughs> Ooh, goodness. Okay, you know what? Yeah, we could really go down the rabbit hole because I've had California Pizza Kitchen once, and I've got to have it somewhere other than Chicago, right? Because I, I wonder if there's a difference. I don't know. So they're in California too, right? Obviously, it's they started there. there. Yeah. So I hope there's a difference. I, I, you, you enjoy the, you don't like them I mean it is what it is different you know it's yeah I, I enjoy pizza 
wherever I go, as long as it's doesn't it's not pork, yeah, and I I can work it out. So Margaret, you you are safe. I think wherever you go. Mm-hmm. No, like, see, I enjoy I enjoy pizza wherever I go. Uh-huh. It just seems like I never encounter pizza outside of New York, and so that's mm-hmm. all. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> on, on to substantive matters. Um, so you all are in town doing uh, some trainings. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you talk a bit about that? Where, where are you at, and 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 then what's that training consist of? Yeah, so this um, this morning or this afternoon we completed um, a, a critical anti-Islamophobia training um, with Open Communities, which works works on they work on um, housing justice, um, fair housing in the North Side, the North Shore, and um, we had collaborated with with them, um, and we did our workshop at Beth Emmett Synagogue. And um, yeah, we had a um, couple dozen folks who came out who really understood justice. They wanted to learn more about critical anti-Islamophobia. And um, we did a lot of brainstorming. It was really interactive. It was just each table, everyone just had so many brilliant things to say, but we're also highlighting um, the nuanced ways, things like I had no idea how um, like subprime mortgages, like how certain bank, like banks were lending um, to Muslims even, and different forms of housing discrimination that people were were facing. And so collectively, there was a lot of like energy and synergy happening. And um, you know, it was like it was definitely a great connection. Um, we were connected with Open Communities by um, Dilnaz Waresh, and I know, oh, yeah, yes, yes. just really brilliant, like philanthropist, organizer, educator, yeah. um, and she wanted to bring uh, Muslim Arts cultural competency training and uh, with an Islamophobe, like a lens to look at Islamophobia to address the ways that um, that uh, Chicagoland Muslims have been are facing discrimination in housing. Hmm. Um, what has been the biggest uh, thus far? What is what is one of the biggest takeaways that people um, that you seem to see people walk away with? Well, when you give like for for me, it was in this workshop we gave people the tools to to analyze. We gave them the tools like here here are news reports. Here here here's an explanation of. Um, What's happening with the community, and I believe in Evans is not Evanston, um, but the feeling that we we showed them clips of feeling the feeling of being watched. Okay. And oh, Bridgeview. Yeah, Bridgeview, yeah. and we were in Evanston this um, this morning, and so um, for them to actually become aware of the ways in which um, law enforcement um, were targeting the Muslim community, going back to the eighties. And when you give people the tools to analyze and look at things and unpack that, that's just the best way for them to learn and that they can come up with the best solutions. We had Muslims in the room also speaking about what, what did they want as far as like making, how do you make Chicagoland a place where Muslims and all people could thrive. And so, you know, we didn't have to do a lot of lecturing. We didn't have to browbeat people for people who really care about the community and justice, we you know providing them um, 
like the stories of people who are experiencing discrimination, whether it was like interpersonal or structural, um, they just really picked it up and, and carried, carried the day. Mm. Now, when it comes to the work that you're doing, it's inward and outward facing, right? Mm -hmm. So you're working with within the Muslim community, but also working with those who are interacting with Muslims. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about the the difference between the two? Yeah. So a lot of our like our internal work is really trying to build capacity within Muslim spaces for racial equity work. We know we are the most racially diverse religious community in this country, and you know out of out of the groups we have. A lot of Muslims who've internalized white supremacy, they have colonized mindset. They may see their, like for, for those who may come from um, a background where their families immigrated post-1975, a lot like that, the immigration, integrationist narrative is very anti-black and yeah. anti-native and it's really problematic. And so, and that's not going to get us where we need to be. That's not going to get us free. And so, what we do is provide the language, provide the analysis for them to challenge a white aspirational model to really work towards justice and equity and not work on Islamophobia at the expense of other mar marginalized people. And that's been like very powerful and especially it's important in, because in Muslim spaces, black Muslim, Latino Muslims are subject to lots of racism. In fact, when we did our study in, in 2014, the group that reported the most discrimination were Latino Muslims, period. Wow. Yeah, they, it was 80-something percent. Black uh, Muslims experienced about 79 percent. Uh, South Asians, it was probably like around 40 percent, and Arabs, uh, Arab Americans was around 30-something percent. Mm -hmm. So that was like really remarkable. And so if we really want to make our faith, faith spaces safe where we can thrive where our children can thrive where i can go and feel safe we have to take um take our anti-racist ethos and our islam seriously but we also need to really understand um the issues of concern towards the communities and that also includes like if we're going to do solidarity practices it's important for my ally to understand what is systemic racism to understand what what are concerns in my community and how I'm impacted. And if they don't have that analysis, they tend to just blame black people. They blame Native Americans for not succeeding like them. And they're like, I came to America with $5 in my pocket. I made it, why can't you? Right. And they just blame black people. So it's very important for us, if we're gonna get along as a diverse community, that they really understand the history, the, soci the sociology, the, um, the psychology that there we're all absorbing so that we can actually really get to know each other we, we also uh, from the inside are looking and assessing how systemic racism from the broader culture is seeping into Muslim communities and Muslim spaces and causing a lot of issues we have an increasing population of white Muslims that are converting and they're coming into spaces, into Muslim spaces. And, you know, we're noticing that there is a growing trend of a lot of the same language that comes from the broader culture, uh, denying racism, 
white fragility and things like that are also happening in Muslim spaces as this population grows and grows. And so there definitely is a need for us to look at it and also offer training. So just recently, we released the White Muslim Guide uh, to that to that end because the country's racial structure is not something that Muslims are immune to. You right. know, it affects us in different ways and, and and from different approaches. And so we have to consistently look at that and kind of like analyze it and teach about it so that we can purge as much of it as possible from our spaces. Mm. When you mentioned about uh, white aspirational models and and victim blaming, basically, you know, it, it kind of made me think of a quote from um, uh, uh, Dr. King. He said, it's a cruel jest to say to a, a bootless man to pull himself up by his bootstraps, mm -hmm. you know. Um, when we think about the history of the United States and it's, uh, as it, I guess we look back at it as a, a stand for freedom and for liberty, right? There was a, a definite a stand that was taken, but it was also an exclusion to the, the, the enslavement mm -hmm. of the Africans, you know, here. It was, a, it was an exclusion, uh, uh, ignoring the genocide that had been take, that had taken place towards the indigenous uh, Native Americans. Mm -hmm. um, so when that type of history is put on, on display, for people today, mm -hmm. uh, particularly allies and particularly Muslims who are non-African American, non-Indigenous, um, is there resistance? Uh, because there is, there is kind of this pattern of we'll stand for freedom, we'll stand for justice and liberty, but only when it affects us. Mm -hmm. So, is there? Have you encountered any resistance? And if so, how have you responded to that? Um, yeah, there's resistance. I mean, we. For the most part, a lot of people have welcomed our work um, because in Islam, you know, the idea of racial equality is, you know, that's embedded. That's clear in our traditions. At the same time, trying to get to like the kind of deeper work beyond the altruisms of a yeah. white is not better than a black. And, you know, like there's like, OK, we dealt with that and now we don't talk about that anymore. Um, but they, you know, you still have imams on the minbar that talk about drinking and fornication, and it's like, well, that was made hood on too, but you're back at the same time that racism was called out. Um, but we're still talking about those issues because we know Muslims are not perfect. They're still going to commit sins. They're still um, influenced by the broader society and just their own, our own nafs and shortcomings. Um, some of the resistance happens where um, within certain spaces where they would say, um, well, that's a distraction. We're going to focus on this first. Certain issues are not Muslim issues. So, for example, whether we talk about police brutality, then, you know, like, I mean, I've, I've, um, I heard, you know, somebody reported back to me that, that uh, another ED of a, of, a, of a rights group had said, oh, Margie only talks about black stuff. And it's like, well, I'm talking about race and, inter, you know, inter, these kind of intersections of the ways that black Muslims are targeted by both, by surveillance, by, by um, you know, heightened, like that, like being criminalized and, and receiving less support if something happens, you know? Like we've, we have the only clergy member that's been killed by law enforcement, you know? And it's just like in any of the cases yeah. where, um, a black Muslim has been killed, I mean, the black, broader black community, if there's any, like if they're not like 
any accusations of terrorism, then they're like, we don't, they don't want to touch it. So our kinfolk who are non-Muslim don't want to touch it. And then our co-religionists don't want to touch it either because like how they just assume, it's assumed guilt um, if you're black. And so um, sometimes the pushback is, um, it's subtle, um, it's more microaggressive, it's um, aversion, the disinvites, you know, once you get beyond the token, you're invited to this kind of table when you point out, like I've been in so many settings and um, in national convenings where they're talking about high stakes strategy to deal with American Muslim crises and defining what the what are the issues and I've been the only black person there. And it's definitely in contrast because if you look at the demographics, there would be an overrepresentation of both white Muslims and allies in those same spaces and very few little representation of black Muslims, even if they were in the building, in the whole convention hall, not invited to that space to define national strategy. When I would point out the exclusion of black Muslims in those spaces where we should be represented at minimum 23%. Right. The same night they had another meeting, I was not invited, you know, nor were anybody else. And then the next year, no invite, you know, because I didn't play nicely. Right. And yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, you know, I teach US history too. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I've gleaned in uh, my years of teaching is that there is an indoctrination in history that occurs across the board. It starts off, I teach in higher ed, but it starts off in primary and secondary education as well, where there is this, not only whitewashing, but this training, this messaging that produces a mindset that ideas like liberty, justice, equality, those are all fundamentally for white men by proxy white women. And anybody outside of the parameters of whiteness, which has changed you know, over the country's history, it becomes a matter of lip service. So you are, through the education that you receive in this country, especially in history, you know, you are trained to see whiteness as liberty, as justice, as deserving equality and fairness, and as lives that should be protected and revered. And anything outside of that, no. So when you are, one, privileged by that, you're white, okay, and you have to kind of, you go, you receive this cognitive dissonance because people outside of that see the country's history totally differently. U.S. history for me as an African-American is very, very different than U.S. history by someone that's European-American, especially someone who has been privileged for generations. So it's a very, very different history. So there's that cognitive dissonance. When you're talking about immigrant populations, it's a matter of assimilation. So in order to become a part of this country, you've got to adopt and embrace the rhetoric okay, that dehumanizes Native people, African Americans, Hispanics especially, okay? So when, every time, and just being, and being Muslim doesn't make you immune to that, okay? It should, but that's not the reality. So every time you're confronted with someone like Marguerite, 
that who says, you know, listen, there there's some big problems here, and it's not just a matter of this one thing. The one thing that you're talking about, the Islamophobia that you're talking about, that's a very, very distinctive thing. There are all of these other parts to it, you know. White supremacy in this society is a hydra, okay? And it manifests and it changes and everything like that. And we keep on trying to lock, lock one head off and ignoring all the other heads, okay? That's what the majority of Muslims, even in social justice, tend to do. They tend to focus on that because that's the, that's the hydra that's biting them. Right. But they don't, that's the head that's biting them. They don't understand how it all works together. And you're not going to get rid of that head. Two heads are going to grow in its place, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. if you don't deal with the hydra itself. But because we've been, we've been indoctrinated into dehumanizing black voices and black bodies, it be, we have this allergy to hearing about it. And so you're not wanted in those spaces yeah. because that's the way we're trained. That you're and dismissing black achievement. Yeah. There is the, you know, adopting the civil rights language, right? Totally, but separate from the grassroots. Just, yeah. and thinking like they could do it better. And it's like, but wait a minute, all of this gra- grassroots work that black folks have done institution building had opened up doors for them, but yet they don't think that they have any need to learn from black people who've been in office, who've run the, who, who've made moves, built institutions. And so there is always, there's, there is a, some, a, an assumed black inferiority. And so it's like, look, I've let you in this space and don't make too many waves to make me uncomfortable because you should be grateful that we're here. And it's just, it's so much cognitive dissonance right that that is going on in in muslim spaces and and seeing the inequality in action and being um subject to sometimes not only the um the systemic issue but like the microaggressions happening in that space like Mm -hmm. the the ways that um you know if there's conflict it's just we're seen as like violent we're seen as just the troublemakers and then then it's like the exclusion because they don't want to deal with the conflict. So I would say like some of the pushback happens to be uh, really related to when we may assert our voice in a way that encourages them to open up, like maybe give some of that power and challenge some of their preconceived notions to think broader about how those efforts may hurt other marginalized people. And um, that's where the resistance comes. The, usually the acceptance of the work is when they see that it you know, like there's a benefit and that's like it's it's self-interest but mm-hmm. when you have people that expand their self-interest and understand like look I'm not going to be truly liberated until I learn to um, challenge anti-black racism wherever I see it um, and when they really work on the kind of humility of being an ally that's when sometimes those voices when they may be like oh, okay I like I'll check myself in that, and they'll see that they, um, you know, for allies who have that process of humility, understanding that they may commit certain, you know, like we have we we have spots that blind spots that we can't see, and then when our analysis is sharper, we come up with better strategies, better coalitions. We have our work environments are less toxic, and um, you know it benefits it benefits everyone. And that's what we're, we're trying to convince people of is like, look, anti-racism competency, cultural competency, um, 
just it benefits everyone it's not that they're giving up anything it's like they have the world to gain they have liberation to gain from that now that's an interesting that's an interesting point because i was thinking when it comes to um adhering to to principle mm-hmm. oftentimes people feel that it comes at the sacrifice of privilege mm-hmm. and so then the person you know if we're talking about allies the, the question becomes what is the benefit if everybody works quite often on what is best for them, particularly in this society mm-hmm. where people, it is a me first mm-hmm. type of uh, thought process. How do you, how do you address that? And, and may, it may not even be something that's voiced, right? But if I'm going to be an ally, I want to support you, but I don't want to lose anything mm-hmm. at the same time. Well, I think that people, especially Muslims, should really do some inner reflection as to what privilege is. Because we have examples in the Quran of people that were privileged to the detriment of their pe- to their people, like Karun, okay? Yeah. So what is what does that privilege mean that, that you're holding so dear, okay, that it's costing someone else, okay? If we're talking about being believers, okay, mu'minin, there is a protocol, and we're and we're encouraged by the example of our Prophet Sallallahu to understand the importance of not being part of the oppression and the hurt of our fellow Muslims. So, if that privilege is something that, first of all, is usually always unearned, that kind of detrimental privilege, is costing your fellow Muslims something. It's they're being dehumanized. Their lives are in greater peril. What is the cost-benefit analysis with your the relationship with your Lord when mm-hmm. it comes to that? So we we're so quick to want to hold on to this privilege because it's comfortable. It's that itraf, you know, mm-hmm. that comfort. But what is that comfort costing you overall as a mu'min? And I think that not enough Muslims. I know I always have to constantly do it. But not enough of us reflect on that. Instead, we get angry because it's seen as a threat that I have to give up this privilege. But what is this privilege actually ultimately costing you in the end? I think that we need to reflect on that more. Yeah, and I, I would like to add, I, I mean, that's just so beautiful and so powerful. The, the, I mean, we know that there's privilege. Privilege exists. Um, we have privilege here as, as U.S. citizens. Sure. And if we use our citizenship right, if we use our citizenship and we're having an argument with someone that doesn't have citizenship, and we wield that as a weapon to shut them down, then that is a misuse of our privilege. And that's social domination, and that's what we're trying to challenge. No one's trying to say we're trying to strip people of their citizenship, which was given to them, you know, but what we're saying is like you need to stop utilizing that privilege to dominate someone, to control someone, to shut them down. And especially when conflict happens, it's similar like with the when you have like a boss and an employee, and when the boss has more power, will tend to wield their power in that conflict and not just say, you know what, I need to take a step back and look at this conflict in a fair way. Um, they'll assert dominance over another person and so for us it's like really about the kind of behavior and also utilizing those gifts and as Muslims using the gifts that Allah gave us for the benefit you know to benefit our families to benefit our neighbors to benefit society 
But when people are just like, you know what, I got mine, and you start to blame other people for having less, when most of the things that we have given in our life, it's be in Allah. It's like it's because Allah gave it to mm-hmm. us. Right. Nothing that we did was deserving of being born in this place, in this time, in our social class, you know, wherever we are, with the families. We've had no choice to do that. And when we understand that um, whatever privileges that we have, we must use them in a way that will be pleasing to Allah. And it's not pleasing when we're using that to humiliate someone, when we're using that to take a, you know, like get an edge over in a conversation or just assume someone is lesser because they don't have as many social advantages that we never even did anything to earn. Right. And and, and further exploit it by uh, inflicting on that person verbal abuse because you you can. Because what because what can they do in the end? Mm -hmm. Well these are definitely things for the believer to reflect on. Uh, very specific uh, and, and targeted for the person who knows that this is not the end all be all, right? Mm-hmm. Now, for those others who are motivated by other factors, right? Um, that's a different. Those that's a different set of uh, variables that they can play there for them. But for the Muslim, certainly, uh, that that should be the the, the overriding consideration. How am I going to look as I stand before? Thanks for listening to part one of this conversation, and remember, subscribe. Rate, review, share, all of that good stuff. You will find Radio Islam wherever you get your podcasts. We're at Radio Islam USA. I'm your host and producer, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guest are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. Going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.